gives me great pleasure to open the plenary session this year. My name is Samir Taneja. I'm a urologist at NYU Langone Health, and I'll be serving as a moderator for the first panel discussion on the future of urologic oncology. I'd like to thank Secretary John Denstead for putting on a fantastic meeting this year, and a special thanks to all the AUA staff who worked so hard to quickly convert to a virtual meeting. Uh, I'm sure we're all looking forward to a great program, and I know it will be. Uh, this session uh, was initiated by a discussion of what will be the future of urologic oncology for young, young people training uh, in urology. Many people have expressed a concern of what, what exactly will urologic cancer surgeons be doing in the future. I think this has always been a concern because there tends to be a continuum in cancer therapy where new innovations come in. This leads to novel interventions. These are broadly implemented and typically it results in an escalation of therapy. Eventually we're able to analyze the outcomes of that implementation and define the true benefit and risk. And that typically leads to de-escalation with utilization of the intervention really in those people who benefit from it the most. Of course, nowadays we have emerging technologic advancement, scientific discovery, improved imaging at a very rapid rate. And so all of these new interventions have great potential to change the way that we practice. The real question is, will advances in the care of cancer, uh, of urologic cancers reduce the utilization of surgery? And what would ultimately be the role of urologists in cancer care? To answer that question, we've assembled a great panel today. Uh, Dr. Simpa Salami, who's an assistant professor at the University of Michigan uh, School of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Edward Trebulsi, who is a professor in the Department of Urology at uh, Thomas Jefferson University. Dr. Brian Shuck, who is a associate professor in the Department of Urology at UCLA School of Medicine. And Dr. Cheryl Lee, who's the professor and chair of urology at the Department of Urology at Ohio State. The group will discuss individual areas of technologic advancement within the context of how these areas might influence the practice of urologic oncology in the future. And then we'll end with a short uh, panel discussion uh, to try and get to, get to the bottom of it. With that, I'll take you into the panel discussion. Thank you, Dr. Tanager and the AUA for giving me the opportunity to, to participate in this panel. Uh, the topic of my talk today is uh, influence of genetics and genomics on treatment selection for prostate cancer. Here's my disclosure. In the human genome, DNA is transcribed to RNA, which is translated to protein that eventually carries out the function of the DNA. Over the last 40 years, rapid development of biological information technology has led to increased throughput and reduced cost of molecular profiling. This technological advancement has led to characterization of the human genome, which has enhanced our understanding of various disease processes. We now know that only 2% of the human genome codes for protein. Uh, the remaining 98% is referred to as dark matter. Majority of dark matter is still transcribed into small molecules like link RNA, microRNA, and picoRNA. Characterization of these molecules, both germline and somatic, using advanced and novel techniques has enabled biomarker discovery and development. 
Genomic biomarkers can be prognostic or predictive. Prognostic biomarkers, on the one hand, provide information on outcomes of the disease independent of the treatment received. Predictive biomarkers, on the other hand, identifies response or resistance to a specific treatment. Both prognostic and predictive biomarkers can be used to personalize therapy. We have both liquid and tissue-based biomarkers for managing patients with prostate cancer along the continuum of care. It is important that clinicians understand the utility of these biomarkers, what information they provide, and in what clinical situations they can be used. In this short talk, we'll briefly highlight tissue-based biomarkers. Uh, these three genomic classifiers, Decipher, Oncotype, and Polaris, aid in risk stratification of patients with newly diagnosed prostate cancer by providing information on various oncologic endpoints. Genomic classifiers are prognostic. They provide more information on oncologic outcomes than clinical pathologic variables alone. For example, these tests provide estimates of the risk of biochemical recurrence, metastasis, and prostate cancer-specific survival. As more data becomes available, they may help identify men at high risk to fail surgery or to have adverse pathology at the time of surgery, such as seminal vesicle invasion, lymph node metastasis. Genomic classifiers may help identify patients to get adjuvant versus salvage radiation therapy. They may help identify patients to receive ADT in addition to radiation. It is important to note, however, that genomic classifiers are not predictive. Uh, put another way, they cannot tell you who will respond to surgery or radiation therapy. Additionally, genomic classifiers should not be used in men with grade group one disease. Uh, this is because these tests are not robust to tumor multifocality. They cannot predict the presence of on-the-sampled or unsampled high-grade disease focus within the same patient. Uh, the AUA, ASCO, and other organizations have published guidelines for molecular biomarker analysis in prostate cancer. It is the AUA and ASCO's position that tissue-based genomic classifiers have not shown a clear role in active surveillance for localized prostate cancer and are not necessary for follow-up. It is well known that men with certain germline alterations such as BRCA2 mutation have more aggressive disease. The NCCN recommends genetic testing in men with a family history of breast, ovarian, pancreatic, and prostate cancer, as well as men of Ashkenazi Jewish descent um, ancestry. It is critical that clinicians understand how to implement germline genetic testing in their practice in collaboration with genetic counselors. How might germline genetic testing uh, change management? In this study of 1,200 men, including a small cohort of 26 men with germline alteration in BRCA1, BRCA2, and ATM, mutation carriers were more likely to experience upgrading during active surveillance. Uh, this data does not indicate that men with low-grade disease and a germline alteration should undergo treatment, but such findings should be taken into consideration when counseling patients regarding treatment versus surveillance. I showed this timeline at the beginning of the talk, highlighting the rapid development of biological information technology. Uh, newer technologies continue to emerge, including spatial transcriptomics, which was named Nature Methods of the Year for 2020, as well as single-cell sequencing. Uh, these tools are enabling us to home in on every individual tumor cell and its microenvironment to dissect and understand tumor biology. I suspect that in the future, nearly every patient will undergo some form of molecular profiling as part of practicing precision medicine. The implication of this is that abundant molecular data will be generated, but just how this will influence the practice of urology is yet to be seen. In conclusion, 
It is important that clinicians uh, know what biomarkers are available in prostate cancer. We need to know the distinction between prognostic and predictive biomarkers, uh, understand what information each test uh, provides. And before we order a genomic test, we need to ask ourselves, will this add additional information? Will this information impact treatment decision? And finally, we need to keep up with emerging molecular profiling tools and data. Thank you for your attention. Good morning, my name is Ed Trebolsi. Uh, thank you to Drs. Tanasia and Denstead and the AUA for the opportunity to present. I'll be talking about uh, molecular imaging and its influence on the surgical management of urologic malignancy. Uh, here are my disclosures, none of which are uh, pertinent to this talk. So when we talk about molecular imaging, it's important to try to define what that means. And uh, one of my mentors, Matthew Thacker, together with Dr. Lentil, now 16 years ago, uh, was part of a joint uh, Society of Nuclear Medicine and RSNA Molecular Imaging Summit to create a definition of molecular imaging. Uh, molecular imaging techniques directly or indirectly monitor and record distribution of molecular cellular processes. So these are molecular imaging agents are probes used to visualize, characterize, and me measure biological processes. So even though this is potentially dated, I think it is important and a good framework of what molecular imaging means. There's a lengthy history of molecular imaging in urology. We think back to the original met-iodo-benzoguanidine radionucleotide assay for a pheochromocytoma dating back to 1984. That is a form of molecular imaging to assess uh, disease status for uh, uh, pheochromocytoma. Uh, standard FTG-PET has been used extensively in all areas of solid tumor oncology, including uh, prostate, bladder, and testicular cancer. It has been rel relatively limited, however, by the urinary excretion and by the low avidity, especially for prostate cancer. A sodium fluoride PET scan, uh, bone scan, it was also used for prostate cancer, um, but is not routinely used widely in the U.S., more recently, there's been a tremendous expansion of targeted tracers, especially in prostate cancer. Uh, these would include metabolic agents, such, such as C11-choline. Uh, this was approved uh, nearly 10 years ago, but it's not uh, widely available, unfortunately. And then more recently, the fluoride 18 flucyclovine, which is approved for biochemical recurrent prostate cancer. And there is an extensive early data uh, supporting uh, the use for initial staging of high-risk newly diagnosed disease, although that is not in the indication as of yet. More recently have been PSMA-targeted PET compounds. Uh, two have been approved uh, for diagnostic PSMA PET scans in the U.S., and they've been used extensively uh, overseas in Australia and uh, Asia. Uh, the two in the U.S. that were approved are Gallium-68 PSMA and then the uh, F18 uh, uh, DCF-PYL uh, product. Uh, the Gallium-68 was initially narrowly approved uh, just on the West Coast. Uh, the more recent uh, PYL compound has been approved for commercial use uh, throughout the country. And these have both been approved for both the primary and recurrent disease spaces. So the initial staging as well as uh, for biochemical recurrence and response to treatment. There's also uh, increasing information that PET MRI platforms may actually be more accurate over standard PET-CT, although these are 
much less uh, commonly available across the uh, clinical continuum. And then there's the concept of theranostic applications. Theranostic is a portmanteau of the two words therapeutic and diagnostic. Um, Lutetium-177 conjugated to PSMA recently was approved for therapy for metastatic castrate-resistant uh, prostate cancer uh, in uh, second and third line treatments. And importantly, we need to see the target present before administering the treatments. They must have PSMA-AVID lesions uh, on diagnostic scan, because if they don't have PSMA that's visible or they have non-PSMA ex expressing tumors, you wouldn't expect that they would respond to the treatment. So these types of treatments are on the horizon and I would expect would widely expand as continued research improves. As you look here, there are a multitude of PSMA theranostic trials in progress. Um, most of them utilizing lutetium-177, but there's also other uh, radioisotopes, actinium and others that uh, iodine uh, so we need to see how these pan out, but this does potentially represent the future of a very targeted radiotoxic therapy. Molecular imaging for bladder cancer has been a little slower. Um, FDG-PET has been used and investigated for urothelial carcinoma. There does seem to be data uh, that there is utility for locally advanced nodal and extrapelvic metastatic disease, but again, the urinary excre excretion limits its uh, applicability for primary bladder staging and therefore it is not currently approved. There are some experimental PET tracers for bladder cancer. We've been working on one at Jefferson utilizing VPAC, um, but definitely a little bit more uh, premature than the prostate cancer literature. So how is this gonna impact uh, treatment planning? Um, it's not exactly clear at this moment how molecular imaging or next-generation imaging will change the treatment uh, paradigm for prostate and bladder cancer. Uh, there is definitely the suggestion that patients with biochemical recurrence whose PSMA scans are negative, they may actually benefit from imaging from flucyclovine, which uh, are, as, as a metabolic uh, target may show um, uh, lesions that are not PSMA added. Uh, the question of initial staging of high-risk prostate cancer uh, has always been there and will always be there. Um, there are concerns about the sensitivity and specificity and potential false positives of PSMA scans. And so this remains to be seen, whether we really should change initial management based on the results of next-generation imaging. The question of the Will Rogers effect and stage migration is a prominent one. Um, this is something that has been noted in many different solid tumors and uh, has potential impact in allowing uh, accurate comparisons of temporal trends of outcomes of treatment over time, but certainly could also impact the initial choice of therapy, which would also add additional ambiguity to outcomes research. So I, I've heard the term Will Rogers effect many times, but I didn't quite understand what it is. And it's based back to Will Rogers famous statement that when the Okies left Oklahoma and moved to California, they raised the average intelligence in both states. So what does that mean? So this is kind of a schematic for prostate staging. And this is two uh, cohorts of patients. Uh, the, the pink red on the left are localized non-metastatic disease by conventional imaging. The right is metastatic disease by conventional imaging. And here you can see within each cohort, there are definitely nuances. We have the, the bright red, which are the true non-metastatic, 
Then we have the purple, which are non-clinical, low volume or micrometastatic patients. And then we have the rare um, misdiagnosis of a patient with uh, widespread metastasis being characterized as localized on the left. On the right, we have the same sort of uh, picture. Most of the patients are true diffuse or widespread metastatic disease, occasional misdiagnoses, and then some that are really truly oligometastatic disease. So if we have a more accurate imaging modality, uh, potentially next generation imaging, we are gonna pull out the oligometastatic patients from the left cohort, the localized cohort. They're gonna land in the metastatic cohort. And as you can see, this, the, the localized uh, cohort will be smaller, but will be en enriched with true non-metastatic patients. So the outcomes of this group will look better. Additionally, if we have more of the low volume metastatic disease in the metastatic cohort, these patients also would expect it to be do better. So as Will Rogers said, both cohorts miraculously got better. Although there's no difference in these patients, they've just been characterized differently. So if we use this to change treatment, we also may have real um, trouble evaluating how we're doing from a treatment outcome standpoint. So what, what are the implications? So the stage migration certainly could lower the number of newly diagnosed men that are quote unquote eligible for upfront surgery. I use that term loosely because we there is you know, at least an undertone of benefit of cytoreduction, especially for the lowest volume oligometastatic disease that might be cured surgically. Uh, we also um, know that there's several ongoing studies of aggressive local therapy in the face of metastasis, mostly with radiotherapy, but there are prospective surgical studies ongoing from SWOG and SIMCAP that will investigate the benefit of cytoreduction for metastatic prostate cancer. And minimally invasive surgery potentially has ameliorated you know, some of the surgical nightmares that we used to hear, at least I used to hear in residency uh, with standard uh, radical prostatectomy. So the prospects of surgery, even in the face of METS may not be as, as gruesome as we used to think. Uh, in terms of next generation imaging for bladder cancer, this certainly may have a role to identify patients that would benefit from neoadjuvant chemotherapy. And going even further, and there are trials uh, Fox Chase and other places, uh, looking at whether neoadjuvant chemotherapy alone in patients that achieve a, a true pathologic and radio, radiologic complete response may actually be able to preserve their bladder. This sort of clinical treatment uh, paradigm is apparent in other solid tumors. So molecular imaging has transformed staging and initial treatment of other tumors such as lung cancer and breast cancer and others. So this may be on the horizon for urologic oncology. In terms of uh, salvage therapy, uh, next generation imaging also could impact. Uh, salvage lymphadenectomy has been reported for lymph node only disease. And if we can really very accurately characterize patients as lymph node only, uh, that may show some benefit. There may also be benefit for salvage cytoreductive prostatectomy for metastatic patients that achieve uh, biochemical and radiographic CR. And then, as I mentioned, the pet-directed therapies uh, for biochemical recurrence, um, may, such as lutetium, theranostic-type uh, treatments may be um, available as well. And there are well-designed clinical trials currently ongoing 
Nehav Epawala from Penn through ECOG has the 8191 Indicate trial. This is PET-directed therapy for biochemical recurrence after radical prostatectomy. And the intensity of the treatment in this trial is directly determined by the results of next-generation PET scanning, either flucyclovine or PSMA PET. The Theranostic approaches have great promise, um, mainly on the toxicity end. If we have a very specific target, we could minimize uh, uh, side effects. Uh, the elucidation of tumor-specific antigens has been the real bugaboo. Uh, in prostate, we have PSMA, but other areas we don't have as obvious a target. And so obviously we need a lot more research and cl translational clinical trials in this space. Thank you so much. Okay, hi, Brian Chuck here from UCLA. Uh, thanks, Samir, and everyone for the invitation. I'll be briefly speaking about the future of kidney cancer uh, and discuss uh, here some disclosures uh, where we stand and where we're going. So clearly there are new paradigms that are emerging in the workup treatment uh, of kidney cancer. And um, we do wanna uh, obviously see where our role is. Are we moving from the surgeon uh, to be more of a medical uh, uh, a doctor with a stethoscope. I don't know how many people are actually using stethoscopes in their clinic, but I think in any uh, kidney cancer uh, uh, clinic, uh, it still plays a role. Um, and tasked with really discussing how the role will evolve over time. Are we going the way of the dinosaur, uh, where we potentially will be uh, uh, kind of losing our space as the central kind of manager in the uh, field of kidney cancer? So while the urologist, I believe, is the most intelligent, the most attractive, and the strongest of all the, uh, the species in medicine, uh, we know from Darwin that really the, the most adaptable uh, uh, will survive. And as we are being assaulted on multiple angles for many specialties for control of kidney cancer, we need to be nimble in our management. So I don't see any dinosaurs in the audience. I don't see any floppy disks. So with all these emerging technologies, SBRT, ablation, molecular imaging, genomics, the question, are we really headed the way of the dinosaur? And we just don't know it yet. And I, I think uh, I'll argue that that's not the case, but we have to be very adaptable in our management. Uh, I think really understanding where we're going, we have to understand where we've been, or we, uh, this is a famous quote from Yogi Berra, we, we may wind up somewhere else if we don't know where we're going. Um, and really just to understand really where we've been, um, I think really we have a couple different eras. Really prior to the TKI era and really the cytokine uh, era, urologists and our medical oncologists really played a major role in the management of uh, kidney cancer with uh, obviously a role of cytoreduction nephrectomy, probably at that time in 40 to 50% of our patients uh, and a very little role of our interventionalist. But uh, with the advent of TKIs and the expanded role of ablation and imaging, we really had a major shift towards a more interventional uh, uh, radiology involvement in early stage kidney cancer. Uh, the role of cytoreductive nephrectomy really became lesser, where maybe 20 to 30% of patients uh, uh, have been going for cytoreduction. The medical oncologists have moved closer um, in the earlier disease stage. Uh, with uh, SUTENCE approval, it doesn't get much use, but uh, there are some patients that see medical oncologists for follow-up. And then really an evolving role for advanced disease with radiation and interventional skills, such as ablation or embolization. 
Now, in the past couple years, there's been a further assault in our kind of our standing with um, uh, potentially, you know, our stage four involvement is becoming less and less. Uh, medical oncologists have taken an even greater role in stage three disease. Uh, adjuvant pembrolizumab uh, may get approved in the next uh, few months. And then clearly the interventional radiologist uh, uh, doing more biopsies and now emerging SBRT uh, taking a role for patients who uh, definitely are maybe too sick to even have a needle placed. Um, and uh, this is obviously eroding kind of our, our standing. Um, I do see in the stage one disease space, potentially us kind of moving towards uh, integration of genomic characterization. Urologists are well equipped in understanding this, uh, understanding from our prostate world, moving and also into the bladder world, understanding benign and indolent disease and really who should be selected. Uh, we are doing uh, a similar enhanced genomic trial like this at UCLA. Uh, I think it's version 1.0, but I'm hopeful in the next five years this becomes uh, uh, standard. Uh, they were gonna see an increased role of non-invasive approach um, SBRT is really taking a, um, a leading role in countries like Japan and Germany and other European countries where uh, this has been uh, uh, very uh, um, well utilized. And there are non-invasive options on the horizon like histotripsy. I think urologists do need to take a major role in this. Uh, and then medical therapy, uh, HIF-2 inhibitor, it's a reality that you know patients now with VHL clear cell as of two weeks ago can get a HIF-2 inhibitor and try to avoid surgery. We do have a trial that's gonna open soon with the PD, uh, PD-1 inhibitor at UCLA where we potentially can give someone a short course of what I would call medical active surveillance. And we will likely do less surgeries. For stage two disease, clearly large lesions still are on the urologist's wheelhouse. We potentially could be using agents to downsize and make surgery um, uh, an imperative partial nephrectomy feasible. There will be options for poor surgical candidates, SBRT, ablations, ablations followed by emboliz uh, with embolizations. We are actually have a protocol with brachytherapy here. Um, high risk patients uh, will probably get adjuvant therapy and adjuvant therapy really is something to discuss more in the stage three disease realm. We're really 10 to 15% of the patients that we're following in our clinics are stage three. Uh, and hopefully we'll have better genomic and tr transcriptomic predictors of recurrence. The signatures are there. They seem to add some value. They haven't been operationalized yet. Um, um, and uh, the, the exciting role, as Ed mentioned, in pet imaging tracers, there are, uh, uh, these are headed our way. The CA9 uh, Zircon study is uh, halfway accrued. Uh, this potentially could be applied to later stage disease and maybe similar to as discussed, a Will Rogers effect will potentially be understanding which bucket patients really fall into and maybe there'll be less upfront surgery in the stage three disease when we find out who's oligometastatic. For adjuvant systemic therapy, um, this is going to the FDA pretty soon. The keynote trial was positive for disease-free survival. Urologists must adopt, either refer or urologists are well situated to give systemic therapy. Most of the side effects for immune therapy are manageable with steroids. Most of the high-grade complications are not managed by medical oncologists. They're managed by uh, uh, um, referring physicians. Therapy will be more complex, so we have to understand it may not be monotherapy, it might be dual therapy. So if urologists do get into this space, it will continue to change. Finally, for stage four disease, poor risk patients may become surgical candidates with systemic therapy. We hopefully will have patients who are never going to see the urologist uh, end up uh, seeing them after initiation of therapy. We have to see where the role of seroreductive nephrectomy is, and I implore you to open up SWOG 1931, the probe trial, which uh, is open now. 
Uh, we potentially will have more consolidative uh, surgery for patients with local recurrences. Urologists need to play a major role. We understand disease. We look at our images, uh, and I kind of dictate that at our program, understanding who should get metastatectomy. But we have to compete against radiation. Cytoshrink is a trial for cytoreductive radiation in Canada, and the NRG is activating the Samurai trial, which is also going to do cytoreductive radiation. So staying relevant, our beach is eroding. Urologists will have less time in the OR, that's clear, but we remain disease site experts. I don't view myself as a surgeon first, I view myself as an oncologist, and I think we have to understand where our role is. Uh, it's not given that we will remain central, but we have to fight, and urologists need tools to stay relevant. Some of these are educational tools, but we need access to new technologies, and we need to be early adopters. We do need to embrace all changes that improve patient care, whether we're first and foremost, or we have our, our colleagues involved. But I think we need a hard reset on the priority for kidney cancer training. Fellowship should be the icing on this cake. Fellowship is not to learn surgery. And I do think that since it's becoming so complex, we might need subspecialization in neuro onc training. It's no longer possible that we can learn every single aspect of every single complex disease. Thank you. And am I able, do we have time to move forward with this one? Yep. Yeah, go ahead, we'll just make it real quick. Well, good morning. And can everybody hear me? And can we see my slides? Fantastic. Well, I wanna thank the organizers for the opportunity to talk a little bit about this uh, issue in bladder cancer, and particularly as it relates to multimodal therapies. Um, we know that uh, bladder preservation is an option for many of our patients. Uh, and frankly, it's a small portion of our patients. And we know that many patients who have muscle invasive disease go untreated. So we have to continue to strive for additional therapies that will reach out to those individuals. Here are my disclosures. So we know that historically, when we talk about uh, trimodality therapy, we're talking about maximal TURBT, concurrent uh, chemo radiation, and then uh, possibly um, additional uh, adjuvant uh, systemic therapies. And we know that in general, it works. When we look at this data from the MGH, Massachusetts General Hospital, and over 450 patients who were involved in clinical trials with TMT, we see that the patients who were treated most recently in the most recent decade, 2005 to 2013, have better overall survival, better disease-specific survival, better bladder intact uh, disease-specific survival, and a decreased need for cystectomy. Of course, these patients are really uh, highly selected. We also know that we've gotten better in trying to determine what systemic therapies are needed for multimodal strategies. This is data from the RTO TOG uh, 0712 trial led by John Cohn. Uh, I was uh, the lead urologist in this study, and it looked at uh, patients with muscle invasive disease treated with maximal TURBT, then randomized to either a cisplatin-based arm with twice daily radiation versus a gemcitabine arm with once daily radiation. In this phase two trial with 66 patients, the uh, distant metastatic rate at three and five years was the primary goal. We published the initial uh, data from three years and JCO a couple years ago. 
But when we look at the five-year data uh, between these two trials, and we look at the complete response rates, what we can say is actually it's quite high. Uh, we've gotten better at tailoring our systemic therapy for multimodality strategies. And even in the gemcitabine arm, over 75%. When you look at the uh, distant metastasis-free rates at three and five years, particularly at five years, again, in this gemcitabine arm, it's over 75%. But now we know that immunotherapy is an, has an important role in the treatment of muscle-invasive bladder cancer. Most recently, we heard a report at uh, the ASCO in 2021 about a uh, trial, a new multi-modality strategy that now is incorporating immunotherapy. This group reported on this multi-center phase two trial of pembrolizumab in combination with gemcitabine and concurrent RT as bladder sparing treatment for muscle invasive disease. In these 54 patients with muscle invasive disease, they were high performers, ECOG zero to one. Um, and the majority of the patients were clinically uh, T2 disease. Most of them had urothelial carcinoma and the great majority of them had no evidence of hydronephrosis. The primary endpoint was a bladder intact disease-free survival at two years. They haven't gotten there yet, but they're presenting some of the early results. Uh, at this point, uh, with a median follow-up of 14 and a half months, 85% of the patients were able to complete all therapies and the 12-week uh, complete response rates, again, very strong 77% the one-year bladder intact disease-free survival, 88%, so very encouraging. Um, so when we think about how we're approaching some bladder sparing therapies, we might ask ourselves, should we consider trimodality therapy? And that trimodality may be expanding a bit. Yes, the answer is yes. We have patients who are ineligible for cystectomy, do not opt for cystectomy. Many patients go untreated and we need to lead first to get uh, management for those patients. Will TMT obviate the need for surgery? Absolutely not. I didn't present this data, but um, in another uh, study out of Canada in an actual multidisciplinary clinic, uh, roughly 23% of the patients uh, in that very intense multidisciplinary setting actually were eligible for and or opted for trimodality therapy. So we still have a, the great majority of patients really uh, are cystectomy candidates. I believe cystectomy will remain the mainstay for treatment for the disease. Will immunotherapy uh, with or without chemotherapy and RT improve complete response rates? Maybe. I think this data that we just that I just presented is pretty interesting. Um, we need more time to tell. And with that, I'll tell you for junior urologic oncologists, the future is still quite bright. So um, uh, stay, stay with us and thinking uh, about improving technology and outcomes. Um, and, and yes, we still will be highly relevant.